Hi, my name is Pastor Tony Garbarino of Providence Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you tuned in to hear a message from God's Word. If you'd like to find more information about us, please go to providencefw.org, providencefw.org. We seek to be Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. So please enjoy now this message. Thanks for coming. We confess this is your word written down precisely, expressly, as you have breathed it out. And we pray that as we hear it read and preached this morning, that you would bless the word as it goes forth, and that it would go forth in truth, and that it would go forth even with the affection given and received, that you would accomplish, uh, that, 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 that you would accomplish your desired effect by it, Lord, that you would have your way with us, and Lord, that it would also be heard and received in a manner worthy of the God who speaks and is not silent. Lord, we confess you are powerful and you are mighty, and when you speak, things happen. Lord God, we pray, give us hearts that are ready to hear it. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We pray that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our precious Father. It's in Christ's name that we ask all these things, and we all as your people say together, Amen. Amen. Please give your attention now to Psalm number 15. Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put, uh, who does not put out his money in interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord indeed endures forever. May he add his blessing upon it now. Well, at various times in history and culturally, uh, it has been become part of the vernacular, uh, rather in vogue to speak of a mountaintop experience. Right, whether gen- generically speaking or in the realm of uh, broader, uh, e- some broader evangelicals, uh, it's usually referred to a spiritual high, right? a sense of connectedness to God, connectedness to spiritual things. And as is often the case, many have pursued this experience by fleshly means, right? by means of the world, or ways not ordained by the Lord himself. And far too often, God's ways have been abandoned for more exciting methods to deep to get deep spiritual experiences. We see in Psalm 15 this morning a discussion of one who sojourns in the tent of Yahweh, the Lord. One who dwells, abides on the holy hill or the holy mountain of the Lord. Psalm 15 is indeed a discussion, it has been said well, of the mountain dweller, right? the mountain dweller. And we see that true mountaintop experiences are not to be merely special moments gifted to some in time, but the mountaintop experience is to be a way of life for the people of God. This defines who we are. It is to be their life, their dwelling, right, in the presence of the Lord, he with his people and they with him. 
The mountain dweller is the one who is with God in his presence, the one who worships God, the Lord in truth. As we look at this psalm, this short psalm this morning, we see in verse 1 the questions of the worshiper, right? And then in verses 2 to 5, the character of the worshiper. And then in the end of of, uh, verse 5, we see the confidence of the worshiper. So the questions, the character, and the confidence of the worshiper. But before that, to set the stage, we need to take a moment and look um, at this, this motive, this theme of mountains in the Bible. Why the mountain? Right? Why go to the mountain? Why sojourn or dwell on the mountain? Why is that even important? You may not have ever thought about it. But there are quite a number of references to the mountain, to mountains in God's word. Right? Throughout the Psalms, mountains are used to describe God himself. Psalm 36.6, your righteousness is like the highest mountains. It is God, Psalm 65.6 says, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might. Speaking of God's control and might over his creation, Psalm 104 says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. The Hebrew word for mountain is har. Har, as in Har-Megeddon, the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo. Uh, it's rendered hill sometimes, but it's used 571 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot of references. In the New Testament, the word is used, the Greek word is used 63 times. And when we look closer, not simply at the number of times it's used, but thematically, canonically, right, whole Bible usage and flow, we see something quite amazing. Um, as I've said in the past, and many of you know this, um, as well, that the, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. Right? And when we think about the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis, uh, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it there doesn't explain all the, the details of what the Garden was. But if we follow God's Word, and we draw from there all that it has to tell us, we see that the Garden of Eden was the meeting place of God and man. The Garden was the temple of Eden. It was a temple. It was there that man was to worship the Lord and to execute his priestly functions. We don't have time to look at all of this this morning, all about what it says about the mountains in detail, but we do read in places uh, like Ezekiel that says regarding the Eden um, some specific things, and we can learn from what it says there. This This is significant for us this morning because we see confirmation of this very thing, that Eden sat atop a mountain. The Garden of Eden was atop of a mountain, right? We, we know this in some sense from Genesis 2, right? Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14, tell us that a river flowed out of Eden, right? Water, of course, flows down, right, from higher to, low, to lower. But we have an even more explicit reference to this in Ezekiel 28. Um, it's there that we read that Ezekiel is pronouncing judgments against the king of Tyre. And he uses imagery from the garden. And he says this in Ezekiel 28, Uh, starting in verse 11. It's fascinating. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. In your midst, you 
In your midst you sinned, and so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. Right? So you see in there this repetition, this synonymous use, used interchangeably, Eden, the garden of God, the mountain of God. In this point, that Eden was a temple set atop a mountain, it prepares us for all the other mountain references that we encounter in God's unfolding plan, in the redemptive history. Consider Abraham. He's called to offer, offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah. This is the same place that Solomon would build the temple. God met with Moses on Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, as it's called, when Moses leads Israel out of bondage, you will recall, and leads them to the foot of the mountain. And Moses takes the elders, recall, and he goes up further to, to the presence of the Lord. And God comes down and meets with them. He meets with Moses. And there was smoke and fire and lightning. And this, of course, is in, this connected with uh, what we see later in the temple, recall, when the temple is constructed and it's built. And it's filled with the presence of God that's shown by smoke, right, <clears throat> that filled the temple. And it was on Mount Olives, you'll recall, that Jesus, he went and he gave the greatest commandment, right? A summary of the law that he gave Moses back in Exodus. And while Moses' time on the mountain rendered his face shining from the reflected glory of God, as we read from 2 Corinthians, it was Jesus, his brilliant, uh, his brilliant glory was derived from his own divine self. And then the Mount of Transfiguration you recall, was the mountain upon which Jesus gave an inbreaking, a prefiguring of his eternal glory. And then Mount Calvary. It was upon that mountain that Jesus was humiliated and murdered, and all of that that led to his eternal glory. And Mount Zion, you see, is the eternal antitype of all the preceding mountains that we come to in God's word. Mount Zion is the place, you see, of eschatological consummation, right? Final, ultimate consummation and culmination. And the study of the mountain motif is, uh, is a massive one. It's a massive one. That just scratches the surface. But for now, I want you to see. I want you to see the Scripture is taking us somewhere. It leads us somewhere. Scripture is not disconnected from itself. To grasp any part, one part fully, we need to see it in light of the whole as best that we can. And when we come to our text this morning, Psalm 15, and we see reference to Yahweh's holy hill or holy mountain, we must consider the magnitude of what's being said here. These five verses are full and rich and powerful. There's much significance here. And ever since man was ejected from that garden temple, Eden, the place of God's presence, man has been trying to return ever, ever since. Uh, you know this, uh, the Tower of Babel was an effort to do, to do just, this, just this thing. Or the high places, right, we read about throughout the Old Testament. They, like Babel, the attempt was to build a way to God on man's own terms, eschewing what God had told them, how, the way to get to him. It was an attempt to ascend the mountain to meet with God or gods. Adam and Eve sinfully sought to dwell in the presence of of God by their own design, in their own autonomy. Questioning, doubting, rejecting God's word to them. And the builders of the Tower of Babel sought access to God by their own design. Israel also sought to dwell in the presence of God by their own design. But unlike them, 
Psalm 15 asks the questions about just who can dwell in God's holy mountain, in his eternally, dwell eternally in God's presence. Just who is it who can ascend God's mountain and abide there forever? That's what we see in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? We've already seen in Psalm 2, right? If you're, if you're familiar with your, the book of Psalms, the Psalter, in Psalm 2, that while we see there that while God's earthly dwelling place was the tabernacle, God's eternal dwelling place was Mount Zion, heavenly Mount Zion, his holy mountain. Remember that relationship and description in God's word. Right? Heaven was God's throne. And earth, right, the tabernacle, the temple, you know, in iterations going forward, was his footstool. David longed, right? You see the distinction, the eternal and the earthly. David longed for this fuller, eternal dwelling in God's presence. Those earthly things pointed to something more. David longs for this something more. His longing question shows a heart that wants more than temporary iterations of temporary, momentary access for a time before God's presence in the typological realm, by type, right, in picture, shadows. David's heart wants to go beyond that and above that to the very place where God dwells on the mountain. And not for a time. He wants permanent residence there. And he asks, how can a person dwell in that heavenly temple eternally? Well, who could enter the temple, the earthly temple? This, of course, points to the answer as well. What needed to be done to enter the earthly temple? Right, you know this, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but there were purification rites, there's a whole system set up, right? It must be a Levite and on and on. And so virtually no one could enter into the Holy of Holies, right? It was only the high priest, one man, and only as he was properly prepared and purified, and only once a year, and then only for a moment, only he could enter and come into God's presence for a time. That was the Day of Atonement. That's why it was so important for Israel. Everything had to be right. Everything had to go right. And if it didn't go right, they had to go the whole year in their sins, out of accord with Yahweh. And all of this, remember, was to approach what? Not the heavenly dwelling place of God, but the footstool of God's temple. Right, One man, once a year, for a limited time. They did not take it cavalierly, cavalierly, uh, because it was serious business. So think of Psalm 15 and the questions David asked regarding the worshiper. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Not merely to have a momentary experience, not merely to journey and then go home to your village. David's asking, who can do this? What would it take? What is true of the one who can abide permanently in the presence of God who shall never be moved as the psalm ends? Those are the questions of the worshiper. He or she who longs, these are the questions of the one who longs to dwell on the mountain forever with the Lord. And there is movement in these two verbs that we see here in verse 1. 
right? Psalm 15, verse 1. These two verbs, there's movement, right? The word sojourn is the language of a resident alien, right? It's a reference to one who enters and remains in God's presence, though they have no inherent right to be there on their own, right? They're only there because of the privilege that has been granted to them. Then the verb dwell. Dwell means to settle, to inhabit, to live, to abide. This has a more permanent sense and nuance than sojourn. There's movement there, you see. David is seeing, he's longing, he's trusting beyond the current reality of Israel's current situation. And I can't help but see here a distinction between those uh, who settle for a momentary exposure or experiences with God and those who have a longing for God that is only satiated with walking in union, communing with Jesus Christ for all of our lives. There are many, of course, who are satisfied and deceived by things that God has not ordained, by not these things, not by these things, right? By mere ritual or whatever it might be. This is the desire of the flesh many times. They falsely satisfy, right? They're lying satisfiers. They falsely satisfy that inbuilt, inerrant, innate need to worship. Because why? Because they are small, numbing, deceptive, temporary moments. And then they go on, go, go on like all is well. Sadly, many, many in our lives, in our culture, are convinced by that. They're convinced that just meeting the standards of what they themselves have set is really the good end for which they were created. I'm not equating here these things with the system that the Lord temporarily set up, right? The whole Mosaic system in the Old Testament. I'm not equating those with that because those were set up to drive us to something greater. Those were ordained for a time with planned obsolescence by the Lord himself, by Yahweh. But like Israel, many today, using their own criteria, long for nothing more. They're fully satisfied in what they have here. They miss the very thing that God is pointing them to and offering out to them. But those who have been given new hearts, those who have been granted life in Christ Jesus, those who have entrusted themselves upon the one alone who can give life and reconcile us to God, those new hearts, as you know if you have a new heart, long for Jesus. They long to be closer. They long to be nearer to Him. They long to abide and dwell in the presence of their great God and Savior. And they have been granted permission to do so by Jesus, who died for their sins and was raised for their justification, whoever lives to make intercession for them. I pray that it describes every one of you this morning, brothers and sisters. I pray that your heart longs to be in the presence of God through Jesus. Right? And this is questions that we ask ourselves. Do you think little of Jesus? Do you desire at all to be in the presence of God? Is it nothing to you? These are important questions. These are perspectivizing questions. Brothers and sisters, they are because of the ravages of sin. Death is real. Sin is brutal. Do you long and yearn to be with Jesus and to know more of Jesus and to live in Him. 
He died. He lived. He died. He rose again so that you could have that very life in Him. Trust in Him if you have not. Do not delay. Do not play games with God. Life is short. And all of us who have lost loved ones know this all, all the more real. Life is short. The reality of death makes life real. These are serious things. And you will find that Jesus, indeed, is your all. He is everything. And so David asked these questions about the one who would dwell in the presence of the Lord. The one who would dwell on the mountain. And then he gives some answers in verses 2 to 5. He answers the question. right? And these, these, these describe the worshiper's character. The worshiper's character. We don't have time this morning to unpack these characteristics in detail. So I'll simply read them again and, and, and give your full attention to what he says there. Who shall dwell? Who shall sojourn to your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money as, at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. But notice verse 5, what it says. Gloriously, right, verse 5, the second half of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. Shall never be moved. It literally says, the doer of these things will not be shaken forever. Right? It says, the doer of these things will not be shaken to eternity. What a glorious promise. What a grand promise, brothers and sisters. For these people, they will stand firm. They will never be shaken. But this might, might prick your, your thinking and your conscience. And you might think, um, there's a difficulty here. You may notice a similar difficulty to that which we see in Psalm 14, the psalm right before this psalm, which tells us there are no such people. Right? Remember Psalm 14? If you just go back, it says, There are, no, there are none who do good, not even one. They have altogether become corrupt. And Psalm 14 and 15 are a kind of fleshing out um, of Psalm 1. Right? Psalm 1 talks about the two ways set forth there. Psalm 1, right, is, is the gateway to the rest of the Psalter. And we would do well to remember that when we're reading through the Psalms. Psalm 1 sets the stage and it's the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. And there it is laid out for us, right, in Psalm 1, the blessed righteous man and the wicked man. And Psalm 14 discusses broadly the wicked man, the fool, the evil, evildoer. The one, Psalm 14, uh, who says, who speaks in his heart, there is no God. Right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14. But Psalm 15 deals with the righteous, right? He who is blameless, the one who speaks truth in his heart. And the problem we perceive is not only the declaration that there are none who are righteous, but that in our own experience, we know this. We know this, right? Unless you are really self-deceived, radically self-deceived or a robot, or completely dead inside, you know that you are not righteous or blameless at all. You don't have the intense longing and yearning for Christ and the things of God, at least not as you should. And I know this is true of you, because it's true of me too. 
We know full well that we find our satisfaction in things apart from Christ. We sin. We fail. We set up idols, even momentary idols, in our hearts all the time. And for those of us who care, it's a painful and awful thing, and we hate it. And we fight against it. And we know the pain of our unrighteousness. And we know that we fall short of the standard described here in Psalm 15. And that in ourselves, we do not have access to the temple, the sanctuary, to the presence of God. In and of ourselves, we do not. But praise God, brothers and sisters. Praise God that the doer of righteousness, mentioned in Psalm 15:2, is not us. That's not our barrier of entry because we will never enter. The doer of righteousness is Jesus Christ. He is truly the doer of righteousness. He has access to the sanctuary of God. And we look at this and we see that these characteristics answering the question about and from the worshiper, who shall dwell in your holy hill? These characteristics are prototypical, right, of Jesus Christ. And they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30, remember. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And because of Christ's righteousness, imputed to you, given to you, laid over you, who believe and have faith in him, God the Father sees you how? As those who do these things. We are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful and mind-blowing? But listen, there's more, right? Listen, for these people, God not only sees you as doers of righteousness, but you actually become doers of righteousness. Doers of the word, James says. And that's the worshiper's comfort, right? That's the greatest comfort that we have in the world and in the next. Not that troubles and shaking will never come. They will. But that through it all, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all that they bring, you will not be shaken. You will not be shattered. You will not be moved. You will not be undone forever. You'll not be thrown or ejected from that mountain of God. Never turned away. Never disqualified from His holy presence. Why? How so? It's because it's not you who makes you able to dwell there in the first place. Right? That's the wicked lie of works righteousness. As soon as your works are gone, your status is gone. It's not you who made you able to dwell in that place in the first place. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. And because your dwelling place is that mountain, that sanctuary of God, it, and it is so because of God's invincibility, its stability is your stability. Isn't that a glorious thing? A glorious perspective change for us. The unconquerable nature of that place, the presence of God, comes not from the mountain, but from God. And as we read, in John 4, it is no longer this place or that place where God resides and where we worship Him. It is rather any place that He is worshipped in spirit and truth. 
You cannot ascend to His presence on your own. You cannot sojourn to Him into His presence on your own. You cannot dwell in His presence on your own. We cannot. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. And the more we can reflexively repeat that to ourselves again and again for all of our lives, the better we will do. It's all about the gospel. Psalm 15 points to, it foreshadows, it describes Jesus Christ. Even as the holy mountain of God from Psalm 15 points to, foreshadows the heavenly mountain. Right, and this is of course why in our, in our liturgy, that's the verse we have there, Hebrews 12.22. You might want to read, uh, turn there, I'm going to read some verses from Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12. This is what the author is telling us there. You have not come to what may be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion, which is what? The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, right? What's going on there? What are those who are there doing? You've come to this heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This, brothers and sisters is nothing less than the very thing we do Lord's Day by Lord's Day, right? Even here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, even in this little church. It is a breaking in, a foretaste, as I said earlier, of that eternal dwelling where we will worship Jesus for all, overwhelmed with His love and His presence. Jesus with us. Emmanuel, not just in December, Every day, Emmanuel, Jesus with us. I know I mention this a lot, but how could I not? It's a glorious thing. It's so prevalent in Scripture. God with His people, us dwelling in the blessed presence of God forever. And it's right here in Psalm 15. And notice also wonderfully that this theme carries throughout, right? Throughout, even to the end of Holy Scripture. We see this imagery in the book of Revelation. Now I'm going to read some passages from that. Revelation 14.1 Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And then Revelation 21. This most glorious passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then a little later in verse 10, he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain 
And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then in verse, chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What an amazing, amazing passage. That's why his presence, you see, our dwelling with him is such a big deal. It's what it's all about. Do you struggle, brothers and sisters, with these things in your heart? I, as I said, I do. And my admonition to you is the same admonition to myself. Flee to Christ. Flee to him again and again. Long for him. Dwell with him in his presence. In Christ you have forgiveness and freedom from bondage to your failings. Right? He frees you from the bondage to sin. He frees you from uh, the guilt of those sins. He frees you from the punishment of those sins. He frees you to put them aside and move away from them and towards righteousness in and by His power alone. That's His promise. And He'll do it. And so as we go back, brothers and sisters, down from the mountain and back into the world, remember these glorious truths for your lives, for your families, for your neighbors. Remember what Jesus has done to give you residency on that holy mountain. Remember what He has done to secure you and to provide eternal comfort from being shaken and crumbled by your sin and by the world around you. Remember and rejoice. By the Father's decree, by the Son's accomplishment, and by the Holy Spirit's application, if you are His, you are that blessed mountain dweller. Amen. Let's pray. Our almighty and loving God, we come again before you. We thank you for this gift, the gift of your word to us, for us. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. We do praise you, Lord, for your, for, for, uh, your wonder and love and your great mercy and your work in renewing your people. Father, we pray Help us to believe the truth that you tell us. Though it's glorious and beyond our finite minds to comprehend, help us to believe and trust it, that we are truly united to Christ, that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we are indeed new creations. Help us to live and think and pray in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. Lord God, we do pray that as your word has gone forth, that it has gone out, that it would have its full and powerful effect here and around the world. We pray for those who suffer in our midst. Father, we pray, encourage them. Use us even in that encouragement. May you grant them the comfort of your spirit and the peace that transcends all human understanding. And we pray that as we walk in this world, and that as we grow in grace by your spirit, and that as we struggle against sin, that you would grant us again victory that you would grant us that we may see who we are in Christ, dead to sin, once and for all. And Lord God, that we may live in newness of life. Dear Father, we all have people in our lives 
that we love who do not know you, or who are maybe antagonistic or even hateful towards you. We pray, dear Lord, that you would soften their hearts, that you would grant them faith and repentance, and that they would seek you and flee to you and cling to you for their very lives and love and live for you. We entrust them to your infinite mercy and love, Lord. Give us faith that exceeds our fear. Use us, Lord, to witness in the witness of the truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would be with us for the remainder of this service. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, about Providence, if you're in the greater Fort Wayne area and would like to visit us, please go to our website, providencefortwayne.org. If you'd like to give, if you were blessed by this message, if you'd like to have more information about the faith or about growing in your faith, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with us. Thank you. We've set up a simple way for you to give to our church online. If you want to give a quick gift, enter an amount, select a fund, then enter your email address and your first and last name. Then enter your payment details and click Give. And that's it. We'll send a receipt to your email address. To use a saved payment method or manage a recurring donation, you'll want to log in. Click the Login button and we'll send a code to your phone or email account. Verify the code and you're in. Now your payment info is ready to go when you want to make a donation. To manage your giving details, switch over to the My Giving page. Here you'll see more ways you can give. You can also add a payment method, a bank account or a debit card, set up a recurring donation, and view your giving history. To get started, visit our website or download the Church Center app in your Android or Apple App Store.